And one of the key threads in those conversations that I find has a real significant impact for the gifters and for the recipients is, listen, you have this money. You get to actually see the benefit of this money realized now before you're dead. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. Today, I am with Melanie Swayze. She's a residential realtor with Unlimited Sotheby International Realty, and she is the founder and leader of the Good Boston Living Team. Her team serves Metro Boston, and today we are going to be talking about talking about money with your honey when it comes to buying a first home. Now, buying a first home is really challenging for couples, and it can be really complicated. Many romantic partners have different ideas about the ideal location, how much they're willing to invest, and how they're going to fund their purchase. And what I love about Melanie's approach, and I think it applies, you know, she serves Metro Boston, but if you live elsewhere, I think you should try to find somebody like this or at least consider the questions we're going to be um, talking about as a couple looking for real estate. But what I love about Melanie is her ability to break money silence, have these great, wonderful financial conversations with her clients. And as you will see in a minute, she approaches, I think, the real estate buying decision a little bit differently, and dare I say, a little bit more healthy. So welcome, Melanie, to the podcast. Thank you so much, KBK. Happy to be here. Yes, I'm super excited to learn more. I always uh, gain some interesting insights when we have conversations. But to lay out some context for our listeners, can you tell me a little bit more about your business and your approach? Yes, yes. So as you mentioned, I am a residential realtor with Unlimited Sotheby's International Realty. My team, which is the Good Boston Living Team, serves Metro Boston that's inside the city and communities just outside, maybe about within 20, 25 minutes of the city, on the train, on the commuter rail, and so on. And so a lot of being in this market is what informs the way I actually think about real estate, which is as an asset, as an investment. It is very much a financial and strategic decision-making process and I, I would say that I often approach it that way before we even think about, as we would call it, the fluffy stuff of a place that you're going to nest, that you're going to build out your life. We really couch that life dream in the context of a financial setting. So you're in an urban market or you're in a market that is served by an urban environment. And what does it mean to own property here? What does it mean to compete for property here? And so that's often how the conversations begin with people is a why. People will often come to me and say, 
I was referred to you. Most of our business comes by way of word of mouth. 85% of our clients were either referred to us or have worked with us before or both, which I'm very proud of. And that's been true for the past 12 years as I started out solo and grew my team over time. So what we do is focus on intimate advising, intimate thinking with people about the why. So folks will come and say, we want to do this thing. And I'm like, okay, why? We unpack all of that. So our very first conversation is informed by a questionnaire that I encourage duos to fill out together. Duos can be a couple. They can also be a parent and daughter who want to buy and invest in something together for the long term, right? So we think very nuanced, very loose, very detailed about people's lives and why their minds are coalescing around property at this time. What happens in the market for you now? What happens if you own this property still in three years or five years or 10 years? What if you need to get out of it? What are the money? What's the money you're putting in? Can you get it back out? So we're thinking about this approach in terms of an asset. And that is fun for me. It's playful. It's frankly sexy. People enjoy it. And then it empowers them to understand the landscape in which they're working. It's really, as I tell people in Boston, it is not about you and what you actually want. The market doesn't actually care what you want, right? We're trying to think about what you need and what are the means that you bring to the table to accomplish that. In a market that's very tight like this, you have to be very clear about your means and your needs. And then that shapes your priorities. And then we have a very clear path forward or several paths forward to accomplish what makes most sense for you. That's great and very different. I don't believe I've ever been asked by a realtor and I've bought and sold several houses and certainly looked at, it feels like thousands and thousands of houses. I've never been asked why. They've just kind of assumed, oh, she's buying a house or her and her husband are buying a house. So that's really interesting to me. It's painful. It's painful. <laughs> yeah, well, it's painful for you. It is a differentiator. Before we move forward and just talk about couples buying homes, I want to just ask you, you know, the advice that you're giving, granted, you're in the Boston market, but would yeah. it be applicable to any competitive city like a San Fran or a oh, Chicago? God. Utterly. And I would say it's actually applicable in a very satisfying way in markets that aren't as competitive because when clients go with this approach in other markets, they get what they need done in ways that's kind of astounding. I mean, I we have, because we're in the uh, Sotheby's International Realty Network, the way that I work with my clients is I serve them all over, right? So I'm myself serving Metro Boston, but I work with clients who are relocating from San Francisco, New York, Colorado, Vermont, Maine, right? And clients who are moving out to those markets. Um, there are a lot of feeder markets that we work in and out of. And the ones that are the least competitive, so not the LA, San Francisco, not the Seattle, not the New York City, but secondary markets. When our clients or the agents that we uh, refer them to take some of the strategy and some of the thinking that I team our clients up with, tee them up with, they do astoundingly well. A good dear friend and client of mine, again, I think of anybody that I'm advising or helping make decisions, I think of them as clients, even if I'm not the one doing their actual transaction and transacting for. And so I have a good friend of mine who's relocating from New Orleans right now to Portland, Maine. She just closed a couple of days ago. And we helped her think about, again, her priorities, her needs, the why, the how, then connected her with an agent um, in the Portland market 
who we, she was like sort of primed and ready to understand that landscape. And she was able to put something under contract immediately, the first place that she made an offer on with that agent. And so absolutely this thinking is relevant everywhere, but it is actually fun to work with folks who are coming from other competitive markets because they understand this is the kind of advising I need. Like the market's tight, it's fast moving. I need you to help me with a strategy. I would say some of the things that are different, like the outside of that, where it is a challenge is where clients are coming from markets that are the opposite of this kind of intensity that we're accustomed to in these um, coastal markets. Let's say most places in Texas, maybe outside of Houston, most places in Texas, I have found that if clients are buying with family funds and a lot of people who are buying in the Boston area are buying with family money, if their parents or relatives who are contributing to their purchase are based in a market environment like you might find in Texas where houses are plentiful and frankly it's cheap and they're looking for a deal, they are just confounded at what it takes to buy property in these markets. And they think about real estate almost literally 180 degrees opposite about how we from how we go about buying property in these markets. So there is a lot of distinction and there is a lot of value in thinking about it from an asset perspective and not just like, oh, I want to go buy a house like you're buying a pair of shoes. This is not like buying sneakers. It is just not. <laughs> you should have t-shirts that say buying real estate in Boston is not like buying a pair of sneakers. That's so awesome. So let me ask you this. So you mentioned a couple of things that I want to unpack, but let's start with the couple or to use your term duo first. What are the biggest money conversations that you think duos need to have when they're buying their first home together? Ooh, I love it. Okay. Well, so first of all, it is why. Like, why? Is it that you are just beginning to cohabitate together? Is this new for you? Have you been living together for a while? And what now is spurring this change? Is it about work and needing to work from home? Is it about commute? Is it about wanting to root down in a particular community? Is it about wanting to add people to your family, whether it's children or older adults in your family who need to come live with you? Like, what is the thing that is prompting this? And how might those needs evolve over time? And what are the financial implications of those needs? Period. That's the first verse. Okay. And then what is it that you're bringing to the table to make this doable? Okay. Where's your money coming from? How much of it do you have? How much are you going to have left over after we make this acquisition? Right. Are, are you, you, for example, are you planning to deplete all of your savings, all of your reserves? I prefer for a client not to do that unless they're about to get a big raise or a big uh, inheritance or something like that, that's going to be a game changer for them. So really trying to understand what is their bigger picture money situation. And then also then to get dive inside of that and unpack that, like, have we actually thought about all the sources of funds? And one of the key conversations that I have with folks, especially where, you know, folks who have been working and earning their own money and saving money diligently, you know, for several years, they feel empowered, they feel ready and prepared. A market that's really competitive and intense, like these coastal markets, really can take you down a notch, to be frank. I mean, you know, you, know, you might say, oh, I've saved $100,000. I am so proud and I am proud of you and I salute you and high 10, right? But if you need to buy something in the million dollar price point, right, that 10% down payment may not get you that far. And so we have to think about where, how else can you buffer your cash reserves? Can you get money from other places? Can you dip into some of your 
retirement funds. Is that just strategic or not? Are you likely to get stock options in the next year or so? Can we play around with your loan structure so that you can benefit from that cash that you're going to receive down the line later? So we get a loan structure that allows you to recast your mortgage and have a lower monthly payment later on, right? We're trying to think about the sources of money, but one of the key conversations that I have with folks is, do you have access to money from family? And that could be in any number of ways. So let um, me interrupt really quick, Melanie, because what I want to do, because that's where I want to go with you, because this is what we started talking about um, prior to having you on the podcast. And because Breaking Money Silence, a lot is about breaking money silence in families. Yes. Uh, we've had a lot of shows on that. So in a minute, I'm going to take a quick break, but in a minute, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about borrowing money from family members and how to make that work. Because certainly in my line of business as a financial therapist, as someone that consults with a lot of financial advisors, I often hear the tales of when it doesn't work. So we'll be back in a minute with Melanie Swayze. Hi, it's Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Breaking Money Silence podcast. I want to take a quick time out to tell you a little bit about financial therapy. Yes, financial therapy. That word keeps showing up in the media more and more, but I've been doing financial therapy for years. And in 2023, I'm going to expand this part of my business. And I wanted you, my podcast listeners, to be the first to know. If you're curious about what is financial therapy, just know that it helps individuals and couples change unhealthy money habits, attitudes that cause them stress, anxiety, and lead them to feel uncomfortable with money. If you have trouble making big decisions, if you find that you're shopping too much, carrying too much debt, worrying about money, even though you shouldn't be worrying about money because there's enough in the bank, it may be time to consider financial therapy. The benefits are numerous and individual, but former clients have told me that they have experienced in a very short period of time, a decrease in money-related anxiety and stress, they have less conflict about money in their relationships, and they engage in more productive money conversations. The advisors that refer clients to me say, finally, my clients can make the changes in their financial behaviors in order to save for their future. So if this sounds appealing to you and you want to know a little bit more, I have a special offer. I'm offering a free 30-minute consultation to anyone who's interested in learning more about financial therapy. You can email me at kbk at breakingmoneysilence.com, or you can go to the show notes, click on the schedule link, and set something up via my automatic calendar. If you're listening to this not on my website and you find that I don't want to do that, I would rather just reach out to you directly. Feel free to use my private email at kbk at breakingmoneysilence.com and shoot me an email letting me know you'd like to take advantage of this time-limited offer. So my hope is we'll chat about financial therapy soon. And now it's time to get back to our regular programming. We are having a great conversation with Melanie Swayze, residential realtor with Unlimited Sotheby International Realty. She founded the group Good Boston Living. It's a Good Boston Living team, serves Metro Boston. And what we're talking about today is her unique approach to working with duos or couples around buying their first home. And where we left off before the break was really about that juicy topic of, okay, mom and dad, 
we want to buy a house and we need some financial help. So mm-hmm. Melanie, you're so passionate about this. Tell mm-hmm. me why you think, number one, it's okay to borrow from family members. And number two, how do you make sure that doesn't blow up? Because I mm-hmm. often see it blow up. So many things to say about this. I'm sorry that you've seen it blow up. I've literally never seen it blow up. <laughs> so maybe we can find some meeting in the middle some somewhere. So what what I can say is, right, because some of these urban or competitive markets are so intense by way of not enough housing to choose from, prices going up continually, and just there being a lot of cash available, it means that you as a buyer need to think about who you are in relationship to other buyers, in relation to, in competition to other buyers. And you need to think about who your prospective seller is going to be. You need to think about what season you're buying in. Are you buying in the high season when lots of other people are going to be competing fiercely with you and willing to or need to sever a limb, right, in order to to get a property before the next school year or whatever, right? What is the context in which you're buying? What is your seller going to be faced with in that kind of market? What kind of buyers are going to come into the table? We need to think about that. It is really not about you right? In a market where it's a seller's environment, okay? So so often when people think about buying a home, they're thinking about it in the context of a buyer's market. A buyer's market is where there are lots of homes to choose from. You have the image of spring coming in and buyers strolling with their lattes on Sunday morning and going to open houses, house hopping, thinking about it for a few months. Yeah, well, what we have been in in the last decade in some of the urban markets is almost the opposite of that. There just isn't much to choose from. You almost want to beat out that season where most people are looking. So that means you have a pre-season, a pre-spring market or a pre-competitive market that's also competitive. So there's a lot of intensity around the calendar where in order to buy something, you have to think about, oh, what's it going to take? What if my options are limited? What kind of concessions am I willing to make in terms of the kind of house, the kind of location, the kind of size, the kind of, you know, uh, flexibility or versatility of the space over time. Right. So all that stuff we need to think about. And then in order to get the thing that is most useful for your household, your contingent, as it changes over time, we then figure out what's the thing that's most relevant to compete for. Right. So, for example, location, uh, proximity to public transport is a key one like that that informs so much about where the resources are where the parks are where the schools are the high end schools where the cafes are where the gyms are the things the amenities right so we're we're thinking about okay what's the best thing you can get with your money how much money do you have to bring to the table so that just to, to lay that context right if it's a seller's market environment you have to think about what things am i willing to trade in order to get the thing i really need and what can I bring to the table to make that happen? Okay. So let me let me jump in here. The when do you bring in the family? Like when do you have that conversation? Is it during this uh, pre-strategy session, or is it when you're in the process of looking? I'm getting there for you. So <laughs> what, what I just described is the very first conversation, right? So generally, my clients or prospective clients are filling out a questionnaire uh, that asks some of these questions that we can go over in our initial conversation, okay? 30-minute conversation where we actually lay out these very priorities and questions, okay? And then from there, I start to unpack that and play around with it. And the reason I need to do that is because in a market environment like what I just described to you, 
People are leveraging resources from wherever they can. So I will say that of, of my whole sort of slate of clients, I would say two thirds of them are using family money in some way or another. And I'm not talking about just first time home buyers. I'm talking about folks who are selling what they have to get something bigger, selling what they have to get something smaller, relocating. People are leveraging money from trust funds, from elder parents, from relatives who just died. They're doing that in order to buy and get a foothold in these markets or keep their foothold in these markets. So when you're in a situation like that, you have to understand, oh, it's not just me who quote unquote needs money. The fact that there's all this cash around is because people are leveraging family money. And you could talk about the racial implications of that. Yeah, no kidding. That's what I was just thinking, like the wealth gap there. Only tightens and reinforces the wealth gap. Absolutely. It's people whose families benefited from the GI Bill after World War II, right? The folks whose families actually have equity in their homes around the country. A lot of my clients who are first-time homebuyers, their parents are taking out home equity lines, right? Taking out equity from their homes that my clients grew up in to gift, gift to or lend to my clients so they can buy in a competitive, fierce tight market like Boston's. Okay. So just to understand the landscape, the reason why we have to think about all this stuff is because it is not about you and what you want. It's about what can you get and why, what makes sense for you to have now and in the future. And can you resell it later and get your money back or make money on it? All of that stuff matters. Okay. So you figure out how much money is it worth uh, leveraging in order to invest in a certain market for now and in the future from what we can project. Okay. So all of that and then when you think about, OK, well, where is the money coming from? All kinds of places, as I've mentioned. I'll start with one extreme, which is I often will coach clients where, you know, we have these initial conversations and they might say, well, I have the savings. Well, my so-and-so parent might be able to help, but so-and-so's family, we're not talking to them. And it might not even be a parent. It might be an aunt. It might be an uncle. It might be a sibling who's willing to lend or fork over money in some way that's going to help you make this transaction happen. You might give them the money back right after the closing, or it might be a gift that, right? So to, to start in an extreme scenario, I have clients who might have access to a family trust fund. The family trust fund might have strict rules. But if we say, for example, just saying this is an extreme and an urban competitive seller's market, so you understand who people are having to compete with, right? They might say, okay, well, we want to take money out of this trust fund short term. We don't need as much as, you know, $500,000, but we want to pull out as much as we can short term. We expect that whatever transaction we're going to do is very fast. We want to be able to buy in cash. So let's say my buyer already has, I'm going to use just big kind of uh, square numbers. Let's say my buyer has $500,000 on hand that they've saved and they're very proud of, Right. And but they can leverage another five hundred thousand from a family trust fund that allows them to buy a million dollar property in cash. Okay, they go buy that property in cash, and immediately at closing or right after closing, they can take out a private loan from another family member. Yes, or yep. Fund, or they can get a conventional loan on really good terms because they've just bought a house that has all this equity in it. It's 100% equity in a competitive market, get whatever loan they want, pay back the trust fund. They were able to compete in cash. They were able to tell a seller, hey, seller, not only am I going to give you a commanding price, but I can close you in two weeks. You can have your money 
in two weeks, all done, right? That's an ex- sort of extreme strategy, but one that is not unusual in the urban markets. So right. Just- so tell me about one example that's more middle of the road, so to speak, yeah. for those people listening in who don't have access yeah. to a trust fund or private <laughs> family wealth. Um, how do you compete with that? I mean, that seems almost impossible. You need to understand that that is in play so that you can have these conversations with your family. Okay. So we explain that context to folks and I'm less and less having to explain that to folks whose families are around different parts of the country, because especially uh, once the pandemic was underway, um, people are starting to see those strategies all over and realizing, oh my God, everything is competitive. Well, that had been standard in Boston for a decade, okay? That kind of intensity. So so what I t- tend to help, help people think about is, all right, you wanna leverage some family, money from family, let's get them to the table, right? So at that first conversation, I bring this up and it might be, oh, we're gonna see our family at this upcoming weekend or this, ho- this holiday next week. And I say, I give them some pointers to, have that conversation with their family or plant the seeds and have set a time for their parents, their aunt, their uncle to have a group call with me. So we talk about the market. We talk about the resources. And one of the key threads in those conversations that I find has a real significant impact for the gifters and for the recipients is, listen, you have this money. You get to actually see the benefit of this money realized now before you're dead. Right. Especially for parents, parents who might have been saving and saving and planning that this is the money I'm going to leave behind as an inheritance for my children or for my grandchildren. Well, the argument in an urban market like this is this is not the 70s or 60s or 50s. I can't just go buy a house because I like it. It's a challenge to get one. And that's a huge triumph to be able to acquire a property that then for example, we can grow our family in. You want us to be able to be in market or location where we have access to quote unquote best schools or most desirable schools or most desirable amenities and keep our jobs and, and, and. You're investing in that life. You're investing in that picture. You're investing in that future for us and you get to actually watch it play out. What if you could also give us money that allows us to have a place that you have room, a room to stay in, right? When you come to visit. So it's like really bringing the family in to that vision and helping them think about how this can be best realized based on the resources that the family can contribute. And that can be as a loan or it could be as a gift. Well, and, and what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that you, and you probably know this, but for people listening in, it really strikes me as you are kind of a master negotiator at helping figure out what are the needs and wants of the people who are buying the home and what are the needs and wants of the family and really looking at what are their their underlying interests and how do we align on that in order to you know get the home or the the asset that you think is going to serve them best uh, i do think the gifting uh, piece is where we tend to see less problems in my field however i am curious about a couple of things as we start to wind down here one is you know, are there families that that react and say, we're not going to do this? Maybe it's not about gifting. Maybe they just feel like people should do it on their own. Yeah. And then the, the other piece is, you know, the part of me that's the financial part is like, oh, do you get this all in writing? Because I feel like it should be in writing. This is a good question. So you're talking about where it's an internal family loan, because if 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 the buyer, the home buyer is buying with a mortgage, 
they can't have another loan. Okay. So if they're getting money from family, whether there's a verbal agreement or whatever behind the scenes and understanding that that money is going to be given back to the family who's fronting that, the lender is going to require that gifter, right? The person who's giving the funds, lending the funds, if you want to call it that, to sign a gift letter that says, this is not a loan. This is a gift for this transaction. For right. This yep. Very clear, legally, this is only a gift. But if there's an internal agreement that, yes, um, if I am, I mean, you talked about first time home buyers, but this happens a lot with clients who are doing a, what we call a buy sell. They are buying a new home and selling the one they currently have. But if they don't have enough money on their own to make a purchase, Without first selling their current house, they might need to leverage money from elsewhere. Because again, in a very competitive market, you're not likely winning an offer if you say to a seller, hey, I want to buy your house. I have this money. Here's the price I'm offering you. But first, I have to close on the sale of my existing house to get that money out. Seller does not have to entertain that. They don't have to wait for that. They really just don't need to honor that kind of contingency. So it is really hard in a market like the ones I've been describing to, to purchase a property with a contingency to sell your existing property. So that's often a scenario where people go to family for money, right? And so it really is, okay, hey, relative so-and-so and relative X and Y, can you front this money for me? Sister, brother, can you front this money? Once I sell my existing house, and I get the proceeds from that, I will pay you back. Well, it's if like you, a bridge loan. It's like a bridge loan, basically, to get it, them from one to the other. Right. But right. all so, so that's a bridge scenario. But even if it's a first-time home buyer, like you asked about, right? There, if they need to bring the money somehow from family in order to make this purchase happen, right? And they are promising that they're somehow they're gonna pay this family member back, well then yeah, I would imagine that you need something in writing between each other. I haven't seen these things get complicated, honestly. I, I think because the rigorous details get figured out before we ever go shopping for property. Right. So everything I'm talking to you about is before clients start looking at property. Well, and, and I think that's the key. I mean, I think that's one of the things I want to leave our listeners with is to be proactive and to have these conversations. And, and Melanie, you've given us so many ideas of the types of things to be talking about of kind of why are you buying and really get granular around that. If really thinking about different resources, not just your savings, but also who in your sphere of influence might be able to help you with this purchase, whether it's a gift, um, whether, you know, in that scenario you just shared with the buy sell, I get the contingency. A lot of people wouldn't wait for a contingency. It makes me, it makes a lot of people nervous. And also to look at, you know, what are all the sources of funding? And it sounds like it, you know, couple of things. It sounds like it's important to have these conversations. And my guess is you are a rare breed that's willing to talk to the family and bring the family into these meetings. Is that accurate to say? To be honest, I actually don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to interview more realtors to find out, but it just, you know, a lot of people and even financial advisors I work with, they're like, oh, I'm afraid to have a conversation with a family around money. And you're yeah, jumping no. right in. And I think it's great. <laughs> I'm being modest, probably. It, it is rare enough. What I can say that I know is unusual is the return rate of my clients and the referral rate of my clients. So there is a depth of trust, of legitimacy, um, 
and of uh, vulnerability that 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 takes place take, take shape in my relationship with my clients. And it is because I am geeked out and excited about thinking about the financial resources. And absolutely, I've had conference calls with clients, uh, accountants, financial advisors, investment advisors, absolutely, thinking about the strategies, running numbers, throwing things up in the air and reconfiguring and saying, okay, I understand these assumptions you've made, wonderful financial planner, but they're not relevant in this market or they're a liability for these reasons or financial you know, investment advisor. I know you can do this thing. I think that's a little risky. Let's find another way, right? So absolutely love doing that. And that's then how you can figure out how to navigate the market so that there isn't a surprise or last minute lurch of like, we need to do this thing. I don't like my clients to have to encounter surprises. We want to have a plan and a backup plan to that. And so if it is that there's enough tension or pushback from relatives who can't get on board, then that's going to shape our priorities. It means that we can't look in a certain prime location or we can't get this much house. Right. And so it might mean that we need to then think about a house that you can that's small enough to serve your needs now, but that you're going to need to resell in two years. Okay, and if that's true, then it needs to be in a situation that we think is going to hold value very well because it's not a long term home. We need to resell it and get your money out. So all of that is how we lay the groundwork for figuring out what is the landscape you're even buying in and how. You have raised so many things for couples who are listening in or individuals or partners about what are the things to be discussing, how to think about real estate in a tight market in a different way, and how to break money silence with their families. I would love to have you back and talk about all sorts of things that we didn't get to, Melanie, at a future date, because you are certainly a wealth of information, and I love that your approach is different. So as we wind down today, tell me, and this is going to be hard, but what's one piece of advice you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, that's actually easy. It's oh, to good. start. It's start early. Start the conversation early with a realtor you can trust who's going to open up conversation for you where you can ask challenging questions and they can help you think through it. If you're not having that kind of conversation, if it's just about the house, you're probably not actually getting to the fundamentals that you need to in order to navigate this successfully, period. And so often you can find a good advisor by word of mouth. I'm also very available to help people understand what they're looking for in terms of the big picture and then point them and refer them out. So even if it's a market very different or far away from where I am, I can help partner you, pair you up with an advisor who's going to be able to think with you in that way. But absolutely, it is never too early to start thinking about the why and then from there, mapping out the how. Love that. So where can people find you and contact you? You can find me and my team at goodbostonliving.com. Goodbostonliving.com. We're also on Instagram at goodbostonliving. It has been so fun and refreshing to break money silence with you, Melanie. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, KBK. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.